specific example from a couple of years ago is um, when some of these uh, AI programs and, and these these, these back end algorithms that the that the vendors would use and um, you know sometimes they were actually called a black box and you couldn't find a lot of documentation on how did the algorithm learn. Uh, but then if the executive walks out of the meetings, we're like, well, I don't even understand like how those, like, how's that data being like used? Like, how, you know what I mean? Like, how does that algorithm work? Um, and I've seen, I've seen programs are like, Hey, we're not doing that because we, we, we don't understand how it works. And Welcome to 33 Tangents, a weekly podcast featuring a rotating panel of co-hosts that all work together in the same company, but live in different areas of the world. The discussions cover a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. All right, and we are back. And Jason, we're joined by Jason again. I'm going to kind of play that that joke <laughs> You're that we talked about at the beginning of last episode. <laughs> I mean, it, it was it was when it was back in the day we used to joke when when John was a regular that it was like we were all Jays, but now like it's not a, we we've gone from just Jays to nuts. Now it's got to be Jason. Yeah, and I, I could really make things fun and you know go with James instead of Jim. Yeah, so, you know three JAs. Yeah, there you go. There which you go. Could, which could be interpreted a couple different ways. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> <laughs> and it's probably true. So I mean, I don't. Know. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, uh, Jason, thanks for coming back for another episode. Um, yeah, thanks for to, having to, me to back. Con- Good to be here. Yeah, definitely. To to continue our theme around optimization and personalization, A/B testing, and all of that fun stuff. So let, let, let's dive right into today's episode because honestly, I think today is going to be a fun one. We started teasing it last week with you know toward the end and last time we were talking about like how do you stand up an optimization program Mm -hmm. um today i want to talk a bit about what you shouldn't do when getting started with an optimization program or just in general maybe we're not even getting started but like what you should not do with your optimization program um so like does like any kind of flashbacks immediately come to mind when I say, what should you not do when getting started with your optimization program? Yes, uh, many of them. And as I was thinking through this the past you know, week or so, uh, you're going to hear me say the word process a lot today. So, um, and I'll just, I'll, I'll kind of give you an example first. So as, as you both know, I play the piano. I love to play the piano. And um, when I learn a new song, I, I have a process that I follow. So yeah, I don't just go into a song, get the sheet music or, or listen to it, just go willy nilly and, and try to build it out. I've actually got a process I follow through. I play pieces very slowly. I take an intro. I learn that. Then I learn the next piece. And then I play them together. I'll play them real slowly. Then I'll, then I'll play them with my eyes closed so I can make sure I really feel where the keys are, my fingers. So that's the process I follow and at the end, hopefully, it's a beautiful song. Like I'm happy with with the output. So, um, so I'm going to talk a lot about a lot about process today. And most of the times where I've seen things go wrong 
it's been a failure in, in process. It's been one of the steps, um, you know, something was skipped or, or something wasn't included or there was no process at all, you know, worst case. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, lots of examples we can go through as, as we kind of dig into the details here. I have a, a very, well, first of all, can I just comment on how nicely Jim and I tan up? <laughs> I, I've been outside the last couple of weekends. Getting I love your it. Work done. I love it. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that I'm really interested in digging into with you, because you've had uh, a much broader experience than I have with, with starting optimization programs. Um, but one of the things that interests me is what your, um, what you have learned seeing lots of companies do this from a starting point. Do, do companies tend to take a deliberate approach to it where they say, hey, we want to build an optimization program. This team has a strategy, wants to own it. Or, which has been my experience, although more limited, you know, does most likely it's the marketing team or someone outside of the general data optimization teams pick it up and, and want to have some, some fun manipulating the site and then it goes from there. Yeah, I, I'll say, um, I don't know if I can give you a percentage, but I will say the the organizations that start with the bigger picture in mind. So, you know, fr- you know what, you know, what groups within your organization need to be involved. Um, and, and I think the groups that start there find it much easier to not only get buy into the program, but to see results quicker. So that's that's been my experience versus... You know, it's it's fun to get a new tool. Like I love yeah. getting, you know, I love I love getting we new all, running I mean, shoes. We all like yeah. new gear. Yeah, yeah, it's totally fun. But you know, you, you can't just go buy, you know, a testing tool and and throw throw someone in marketing a WYSIWYG and be like, hey, go at it. Um, yeah, that's but that seems probably, to be. That seems to be the yeah. place, again, from my experience, it seems to be the place to start. I think SaaS vendors have discovered that they have a proven way of selling into marketing and kind of wowing them with the the WYSIWYG because I think marketing for so long has wanted to do these kind of cosmetic things, change a headline, change a button color, and they always get pushbacks like, oh, well, we got to wait till our next release. And so they're kind of sold on the ease of that. Just go into our editor, click this button, change the color, boom. And so marketing's like wide-eyed, yes, like we want this, right? The, the, the challenge is, I think more than any other kind of space that we play in, optimization touches so many different areas of the organization yeah. that, you know, once you go past just basic, basic changes, you're now branching out to where you need to bring in design and creative and engineering and sometimes legal and copy. And if you don't, what's been your experience of companies that have done that from the beginning versus kind of gone the route of let's just have some, some cosmetic changes. Then they mature to the point where they're like, Oh, like we've hit a block here. Yeah. I, I think it, I think a program takes a, st- I, I, in my experience, I've seen a program take a step or two back. So they may start in the marketing with one person. Hey, we did, you know, uh, I'm not a huge fan of button color tests unless it's, you know, unless there's some sort of like readability issue or something going on. But, um, you know, there's, there's some quick things you can do through the WYSIWYG. But then as you start to get into the more impactful ideas, I mean, some test ideas that are simple have an impact. But, you know, normally you, you do, you know, one, one of the points I wanted to bring up today was, was not working in a silo. So you hit it on the head, Jason, like, 
the, the organizations that I see that I would call best in class that I've either worked at or, or worked with, you know, on the agency side, uh, they're not siloed. So it's not, it's not optimization in a room and we don't involve content, you know, or we don't involve the, the design team or IT. It's, it ha there has to be not only broad involvement, but broad communication as well. So yeah, for sure. And, and and if you start like with those simple ideas and you start getting a bunch of tests kicked out, you're, you're, you're most likely going to take a step or two back to, to get a different process in place to include everyone in the organization. And, and the danger with that is you can lose some momentum. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's hard to get back some of that momentum once you had it and lost it. It's not impossible, but it's just going to, you know, you're going to lose something there that has to be kind of brought back into the process. So what I think I heard you say is I should stop using my optimization tool as a way to circumvent my internal <laughs> governance and policies around releases and site changes. You're saying I shouldn't be doing that. I, I, I'd say it's not a best practice. I know people do it all, you know, it's, it's done all over the place. And, and, you know, I, I understand some of the reasons like IT resources are, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of site redesigns, um, a lot of replatforms. So IT resources are um, strained or, or already, you know, already given over to other projects. Um, but there is a, there's definitely a danger there um, from many different standpoints. I mean, you, you know, simple code changes on the site that, that aren't necessarily understood by that, by the person in marketing, could could change your your test experience online, and, yeah. and you may not even know. You you, may, you know you may not even know. Yeah, so. no, it's uh, it's such a good point, and sometimes you may know. Um, I will, I will uh, not be shy in it and admitting it. Um, many many years ago, um, I I launched a test for Staples.com, and uh, we had found a, a way to kind of go around the traditional QA approval process. And um, I launched the test without, I, I had blocked out areas of the site that I was going to manipulate with just um, placeholders that were just colored boxes that had, didn't hold any content. And this was on the homepage. And I, I launched it and above the fold, there were three big content slots that just had solid colored blocks placed over the content. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you can go out and it can be noticed and you're like, okay, that was a mistake. I probably should have not tried to circumvent the process there in the design yeah, for and, speed. And, yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure they weren't totally happy about that. Um, right. I've seen cases right. where further on down the funnel, you know, as you get to, you know, I, I do see some companies they're, they're hesitant to, to test in some of the most impactful places. You know, if you have the volume, you know, test yeah. your checkout flow, yeah. but you know, if you, if something goes wrong, you know, if you pull the WYSIWYG in and you don't thoroughly QA it or you don't understand, like, you know, you don't want to take down, you don't want to take down revenue for any amount of time. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that a little bit, because especially as you're getting started with a new optimization tool or program, that's one of the things that I've heard a, a lot from, from executives, from site producers. Yeah. Go ahead and experiment with this, but please, please, please don't touch our most important areas of the site. But what ends up happening is they're like, go test this like section of the blog that literally no one goes to. So there's no risk. 
And so it's a bad experience. It has no, there's no learnings really to come from. It's not impactful. And so the very start of this program, which we're all excited about, kind of is a wah, wah, wah. Do we have sound effects, Jim? Like, you know, it's, (laughs) it's kind of a big meh. You know, and so yeah. we kind of lose some of that opportunity. So I get it. I get kind of the the risk factors, but especially as you're starting out, how do you balance that? Because again, I've heard it so often. Yeah, get started, but don't go anywhere near like the most important areas of our site. Yeah, and, and you know, and I can understand that. You know, if, I, if I'm the vice president of e-commerce, um, you know, I I may not want my first A/B test to be in the checkout flow. Um, but I'm I'm going to go back the process again because part of the process is building out a roadmap. And part of that roadmap, um, in, in my opinion, should show somewhat of a crawl, walk, run approach. And you could, you know, you could say to the organization, hey, let, let's start with a crawl, right? We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna test this out, um, make sure everything, everything works well. And you can start with like a simple AA test just to make sure the data flows through you know, um, that, that's one way to do it. But then you can map out like here, here's how we want to progress. We want to start with these type of tests. Um, once we prove that the, the process works, we're seeing data, we're not disrupting any experiences, um, then we can, we can move on. We can move deeper into the funnel. Um, we can get to like the product detail page or, or some or search results page and then eventually get down to the checkout flow. Um, you know, I, I was, I, at a previous um, company, we did a whole checkout redesign um, for, for a real small mattress company. And the, the test was amazing. I mean, the lift we saw from just a couple basic changes on the, on, I think it was the, if I recall correctly, it was like the first step in the, in the flow of checkout, um, huge impact on revenue. So I, but I think, you know, you, you're right. You're not going to get there right out of the gate. I don't, I don't think any, you know, any senior level executives would say, yeah, let me, I'm okay with that. But I think if you show a solid plan and a process in place, um, you know, that can be done. And, and the QA point is huge, right? It's, it's easy to skip, <laughs> it's easy to skip QA or not do QA properly. And when I say QA, I, I not just before a test launch, but right after it launches, right? You want to make sure everything still looks good after that. Um, you know, prove out the QA process and, and show, you know, show, show the executives like what this is how we work. And, and by the way, if something does happen, which we don't want it to happen, we can flip a switch and turn it off and go back to the default, like, you know, like that. But there has to be some sort of monitoring in place, you know, to make that happen. Yeah. How important is it, especially getting started to introduce some sort of statistical rigor you know we we put these tools in front of people that most often expose these calculations and terminologies they may know like you know p-value and variance and statistical power and um confidence intervals and regression and how important is it to introduce some rigor to understand what those things mean versus well the 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 platform said version b1 so that's all that really matters and it was at 98 percent statistical significance so that's all we really care about yeah i think it's i think it's hugely important um and i also think it's important not to overcomplicate it so um you, you know you can you can you can do your results and your readouts and and stick with something like statistical significance but i think everybody that you're that you're involving in your process, I think they have to understand the basic definitions. So explaining what a comp 
confidence interval means. You know, we have a test, we have a test variation we can compare it to a control group. Um, do their confidence intervals overlap each other? And what does that mean? Um, I, I think explaining those things and making sure everyone's on the same page and understands it is really, really important. Um, along with that, part of, part of the, the rigor behind the statistics part of it is also running what we call some sample size estimates before a test even runs. So you, you can run, and this involves, you know, some calculations, but you can, you can say, okay, based upon these statistics, like this 95% confidence level, let's say, um, and 80% power, we think the test is going to run for three weeks. That really helps you map out a roadmap. And that also shows, you know, your executive team that, hey, we, the process is here. You know, we know what we're doing. The data is tight. Um, so I, I think some rigor behind the statistics is important, but I think it's also important not to overcomplicate things. Yeah, I, I agree. So how do you strike that that balance? Because um, I think as an executive, there is a trust factor and a feel good factor that you're looking for that we're not just entrusting results to some algorithm. We don't know what what is happening there. So how do you strike that balance between saying, hey, we've taken a real scientific approach to this and going too far to the other side? I sat in on a meeting once where the the lead of an optimization program was presenting to some executives and went on and on about Bayesian theory and p-hacking and like diving into all these details. And finally, one of the executives raised their hand and said, look, you know, I may look stupid here. I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. And I'm trying to figure out why I'm even sitting in this meeting. So how do you strike that balance, especially in the beginning where it's such a new concept to so many people? Yeah. Uh, pick a couple, pick a couple key concepts. Um, you know, I, as you're going through that, I was kind of smiling because you know you hear about like Monte Carlo simulations and, and um, you know, two-tailed t-test yeah you don't want to you don't want to get into that i i don't think um i'm going to use a maybe a poor analogy here but they, they don't necessarily your executives don't want to know how the sausage is made um i think there has to be trust in place i think there's there's a few basic concepts to get down statistical significance confidence intervals um but there aren't that many like you know you don't you don't need a lot of a lot of terms you don't need a you don't need to go in and, 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 and wow them with your technical or statistical knowledge. I think they just need to know um, what, what a few key terms mean and, and what does that mean to the data and the results? Like, you know, if, if I were in their shoes, I'd really want to know like, Hey, if we, if we push a winning experience live, you know, what's that mean? <laughs> like, what's it mean from a revenue standpoint? Are we going to see any variations um, and that can all be explained pretty simply up front, you know, with the test results. Shameless plug, Jason authored an article on the 336 site called Making Sense of A-B Test Statistics, where you used a fun analogy with uh, your dog and kind of, what was it, fetching a ball or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. So, so I, I mean, that's I, a great, yeah. great example of, of kind of, I think, the, the um, level that you want the conversation to be at. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't necessarily think of that just now, but storytelling, you know, a quick story with something that um, is common to all of us, whether it's pets or food. Um, but, you know, in that case, yeah, you know, you, you throw a, a ball to a dog a hundred times and you compare it to throwing a ball to a, a, another dog a hundred times and what's the fetch rate and, how, you know, what's that mean? I think bringing it down to that level 
um, makes things easier to understand. Um, because because really what you want is you want your your support from above to to walk away, you know, understanding what you just told them at a at a pretty you know pretty high level. They're you know they're super busy and they got a lot yeah. going on. So making it easy for them to understand not only that but you know they may get called into a board meeting and they may use a quick analogy like that you know you know w- with the board. So um, that's a really good point about about storytelling and kind of you know, getting it out of the statistical realm and bring it back to like something that everyone can understand. Yeah, I think, you know, especially again, as, as we're kind of getting started with, with a new tool or a new program, it's, it's so critical to drive that adoption and awareness of, of what we're doing. And I think it's important that we establish our credibility and expertise, but we also have to remember, and we talk about this a lot in, in our work is, we, we can have an incredibly like solid, lots of rigor to what we're building, but if it makes the people we're working with feel alienated, like un- we, then we failed, right? And so we have to strike that balance of establishing credibility and expertise, but we have to remember, how are we making the people we're presenting to feel? And if we're talking to executives and they're like, why the hell am I sitting in this meeting? Then we failed, right? We, we need their yeah. buy-in. So, uh, so, you know, an exa- a, a specific example from a couple of years ago is um, when some of these uh, AI programs and, and these, these, these backend algorithms that the, that the vendors would use and, um, you know, sometimes they were actually called a black box and you couldn't find a lot of documentation on how did the algorithm learn. Um, so, you know, it was exciting to say, oh, hey, we have this, this program that we can show half of our visitors this, half of them that, and then the machine automatically learns. And then we, we move traffic over here because this one's doing better. Uh, but then if the executive walks out of the meetings, we're like, well, I don't even understand like how those, like, how's that data being like used? Like, how, you know what I mean? Like, how does that algorithm work? Um, and I've seen, I've seen programs are like, Hey, we're not doing that because we, we, we don't understand how it works. And I think it's getting better, especially as we get more into this, you know, this whole AI thing, I think it's getting better because we're starting to understand and, and vendors are being, I think, a little more transparent with what's going on behind the scenes. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Like you want them walking out of the meeting or during the meeting, understanding what you're saying and feeling good about, you know, feeling good about what, you know, walking out and making decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's such a, an important point to, to think about not, not only early on throughout, but especially early on, like is the first impression type of thing. If this is the first impression we're giving of this new tool or program we're doing, you know, if we're not getting, giving a good first impression, we're going to have a lot of uphill work to. to yeah. Know. So, yeah. For, so, so for a starting program, don't, don't, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend going out of the box and first test is like, is like, you know, an automated personalization type of effort. Um, you know, you might want to save those for later yeah. until the process is kind of proven out. So as we're getting started, how important is it to have a tight integration with your behavioral analytics platform? Or is that something that we should think about more as we mature the types of tests we're running? I mean, I, I think it's important to think about up front. So um, that, it's, it's one of the things I was thinking about earlier as well. Um, you know, I, I, I see so much value that comes from having an analytics platform integrated with a testing platform. Um, some of the testing platforms out there, and, and I've worked with, you know, several, 
Um, but, the, but the analytics within the testing platform itself may not give you exactly what you need. It may not give you um, what, you know, what your stakeholders and product owners are used to seeing from your analytics program. So the worst thing that could happen is you could bring in some data that's not, it's not consistent with what they've seen in the past. And then they're really going to start to question it. So I know having those, these tied in tightly has provided a lot of benefit um, to clients that I work with now, um, because you can really, you know, I think, I think the stat is about 25% of tests uh, proved to be a winner. So winner meaning, you know, we, we see a winning variation at a high level of confidence that we implement it. So the other 75% of tests, what's going on, like with the data and how, how do we get learnings out of that? And yeah, what's going and and how you know how we get learnings is tying it into the into the analytics platform. That's really how you can how you can get learnings from the other seventy five percent because that'll help drive a program. You got a guess there, huh? Um, oh, you're a, oh, yeah, uh, you go. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I think I think great great insight there. Um, <laughs> you have to leave. Bye. Okay. He wanted to be on the podcast. I love um, it. Love it. <laughs> um, I lost my. I think I had a really good follow up, and now I. Can, oh, um, what what advice or maybe warnings would you give for a team rolling out a new tool that is very eager to um, maybe force winners? So we we set up a test and we set up you know the the metrics that we're going to evaluate. The metrics don't give us the result we're looking for, so we go digging in the data and say, "Well, it optimized this metric, so therefore it's it's a winner." What what advice yeah. would you have? Because I think it's such a it's such a natural thing for teams to want to force a winner because they've got this idea, and then rather than being scientific about it and letting it proof out in the data, they're like, "Well, how can we manipulate the data so it proves the idea that we had was was right?" Yeah. So so what not to do right with an optimization program? Don't have a process, but part of that process is what we call a test brief or a test plan. And in that test brief or a test plan, it could be a, it could be a one or two page document with some mock-ups, but you're, you're going to have a hypothesis in there. And in that hypothesis, you're going to clearly state what your primary metric is, what your primary KPI is. And that's what you call the test on. Um, and, you, and you have to stick to that. You know, you, you need consistency in your program. You, you can't say, oh, you know, our primary metric was conversion rate, uh, but let's go with link clicks, right? Because, because the link clicks actually may be hurting conversion. Um, so, you know, you've really got to, part of the process is you really got to think through, spend some strategic time thinking through the test idea. Like, what are we really trying to do? Who's our audience? How are we going to measure success? Um, and you got to, and you got to stick to the plan. You know, you, you, you got to stick to the plan because you're, because eventually, you know, that'll, that'll catch up and you get called out on it. Hey, you know, it's, it's just not going to be a solid program and, and you're, you're going to reach some definitely, so you're going to hit some roadblocks along yeah. the way. So as, as part of that plan, what advice do you have, or how do you guide clients on what is a natural human desire to like be peaking? the entire time. Um, and I think it's on both ends of the spectrum that I've seen it where we launch a test and it's like, okay, let's, let's keep refreshing the dashboard. And sometimes 30 minutes in, Oh, conversions down. We got to stop the test or conversions up. Like this test is over. And it's like, wait a minute. We're like literally 30 minutes in. How do you strike on, on the one end? I think it's much easier to address from a 
conversion is going up. It's like, wait a minute, we have volatility. We need to let this run. As part of our process, we've set X days. If, if you have a you know a practice that you advise clients mm-hmm. to let us run, I think it's easier to map towards that. I, it's, it's harder, I think, to manage towards the other where maybe conversions going down and people start panicking and saying, we have to stop it. How do you, how, so how yeah. do you address the, both of those scenarios? So I, I definitely think it depends upon the context. So um, I like the word inconclusive. So as you know, I could see a team who's just starting out and they're excited and they're running their first test and they want, they want to share the results early and be like, hey, this is, you know, it's, especially if they're starting to see a little bit of a winner. But look, to your point, results change. They're going to change early on. You, know, you, you might see a winner one day and two days later, you're going to see the opposite. So it's best to, to maybe give some indication of where things are heading. But, you know, I would definitely not say, hey, this variant is winning after two days. Um, you know, unless the volumes there, which is, which is my other point. Um, so I wouldn't share test results too early. That's, that's, you know, one thing not to do is sharing it too early. Um, but you know, when I was at Dick Sporting Goods running the program there, you know, we would test on, uh, during, during the holiday season. So Black Friday, um, Cyber Weekend and a huge amount of business, a huge amount of volume came in during those, that week or two, um, so in that case, we were sharing results on the hour. I mean, we were getting on phone calls every hour and be like, hey, revenue's down, you know, conversion rates down some, you know, 2%, and the confidence rate's only 70%. Well, stop it, stop it. Like we're not we're we can't lose any more money right now. Forget if it might go back up in a day. Like, you know, so it just depends upon the context as well. Um, you know, so yeah, I'll just I'll leave it at that. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of that, what what advice do you have for organizations that are just getting started on kind of that type of test to run? Going back to our previous conversation, like maybe we're we're wary of our, our, our high conversion pages or our high value pages, but we also don't want to go test on a blog post that gets two visitors a year. What what types of tests? And then you also mentioned, you know, let's not do the whole button color thing. What types of tests? Or, and maybe it's it's too broad of a question, but what types of tests would you advise are the best if I'm just getting started? Yeah, I, I mean, one thing that would help is is just doing some sort of quadrant analysis or or putting some a little bit of rigor behind what does a quality test mean? Um, and a couple factors could go into that. It could be you know traffic to the page. To your point, like you know, we have a blog page that gets very little traffic. Um, it might not be a great test out of the gate. Um, we might not see a big impact there. But if we have a test, you know, on our product detail page, and and we maybe we have some good user feedback that also says, hey, this is a problem area. Um, those those are areas to go after. So you know, one of the things I think I wrote about a couple months ago as well was using the data to help you with test ideas. So as you get into the data. You know what? What pages have the highest exit rates and the lowest conversion rates, or a high conversion rate and a high exit rate? You know, if you get a high converting page but it has a high exit rate, how do you decrease exit rate? So, you know, kind of thinking it through a little bit more strategically, um, you know, will help. Will help do that. What What advice do you have? Because you know, getting a new a new optimization tool, getting a new something. It's like when we're a kid and we get a new present for a birthday and we want to play with it, you know, for 14 hours every day because it's the new thing. What what advice do you have to kind of 
have a little bit of balance as you're starting out a program and not try to over instrument and test like, hey, we got a new tool. There's 18, th let's run 18 concurrent tests because we're so excited to get this thing going. Yeah, so uh, one of the things I learned from a mentor of mine um, years ago was if you, you know, if you're, let's just take the 18 tests at one time as an example. Um, there's things you should not do when you're running tests simultaneously, and there's things you should do. So I, I could run five tests on my product detail page, but if I'm not careful and, and carefully thinking out who's in what test, like how do I how do I make tests mutually exclusive so that the the data is clean, um, you could run into into some issues there. So you know, thinking through things like that, you're right, it is exciting to get the testing tool. And if you have the traffic, that not all companies have the traffic to be able to run tests simultaneously um, on, on, on the same page. But if you do, you, you really need to think through, like, what's the user impact, but also what's the impact on the data? Um, you know, an example is, if, I, if I'm running two tests at the same time on, let's say, the homepage, I may want me in test A and, and Jim in test B. And, and I might I might want to not let Jim into test A because it might muddy things up. So just getting cleaner reads on the data and, and, and same with user experience. It's hard to QA multiple tests if you're if you're not thinking that through because yeah. you, you won't really know what experiences people are actually seeing. Yeah. And so if you do the math on the combination of things, it gets it gets exponentially incredibly complicated really, really quickly. Yeah. Um, yep. And I've, I've talked to teams that take the standpoint of, well, these things are independent of each other. And as, as a, maybe you can argue that from a data perspective. I don't think you can. You definitely can't argue that from a user perspective because as a user of the site, it's creating a completely different experience based on the number of combinations of things I'm in. And if I'm not taking that into consideration, you know, so I guess that goes back to my first point or my uh, point a few minutes ago around how important is it to to understand kind of the statistical pieces of what's going into it and how how rigorous should we be versus meh, you know, it's it's more of a do we feel good about what we're doing and we don't need to worry about all these like computations yeah. and things. Yeah, don't don't go with the feel good state. <laughs> um but you know there 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 has to be some there has to be some rigor around it um so again you know I, I know i've said the word process a lot but you know the process has has to be in place um just from from front to back end and and you really need to think through you know what are those steps um to the process and you know, you do want to think through the, the, the concept of just of simplicity. So sometimes keeping things simple, and I don't mean simple like uh, the, the test idea, like button color, but simple like, hey, we have the ability to run five tests at the same time, but let's not do that right now. Let's let's start off with, and this is just for a program that's starting off. Let's do one, prove that out. Now we can run two together, prove that out and see, you know, and see what, what you'll find is the more complicated you get, the harder it is to really understand what's going on, not just with the data, but more importantly, with the user experience. Back to a, a remark you made around understanding how your optimization tool is, is doing the math or presenting the numbers as you're getting started, how important is it to invest time in 
really understanding how that works. And not that we may expose that to the larger organization, but just us as end users. And the reason I bring that up is, and I'm not going to name the, the platform, but we, we have we have someone at 336 that is very curious and investigative, investigatory. Uh, so Hilao, at one point in time, started questioning some numbers that were being presented in optimization platform. And she shared them with me and her and I did the math over and over and again and kept coming up with the same results that were in conflict with what the optimization tool was presenting. I went back to the product manager of this tool and said, hey, can you check my math here? And they said, oh yeah, we know that it's wrong, but we're, we're, it, it the number that we put out there just makes the user of our platform feel better. I'm like, but the math like, is fundamentally wrong. Yeah. So how, how important is it to invest that time and not just trust that what they're saying is what's really happening to really understand the math behind what's being presented? Oh, I mean, that's a great point. And I, I, I know the specific example you're talking about because Hila and I also chatted about that one. Um, and I'm glad she shared it because it's, you know, especially when you're talking about like estimating a test length or, or looking at competence intervals or, or you know, because your executives are making important decisions based upon what you're showing. I mean, they're making important decisions and, and, it, and it comes down to, you know, the money a lot of times and the user experience. So before launching these tests, if it's a new program and you're a new optimization manager, definitely dig in. Um, you know, there's lots of good resources out there. You can get you can get the tool documentation. You know, you got you got other channels. You know, channels out there for messaging. You can go to conferences, but there's there's enough information out there for you to really understand like what's going what's going on behind the tool. Um, and you and you'd want to find that out sooner than later because. You know, the, the, the last thing you want to have happen is you've been running the program for two years and oh, we find that out and oh, how long has this been going on, right? Like <laughs> how, how long have we been not necessarily thinking about the results correctly? Yeah. Because the tool was giving, you know, you know, inspect what you expect. I love that quote. So Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, as we're, as we're starting to kind of get towards the end here, one question that I've wanted to ask and I'll, I'll ask it now is what are the top three mistakes that you see people make when they're getting started with a new optimization tool? Yep. So uh, the first one is no process. I mean, I'm just going to say that one again. It's so, so important. Um, and I, I come from a, you know, I like process. I come from a background of doing some Six Sigma work and some process excellence. It's really, really important. So that's the first. Um, the second is chasing velocity. So, you know, you, you may get, you, as a new, as a new optimization program manager from above, you may get some, some directives that say, hey, we need you to launch 10 tests a month, or let's just say that. Um, the danger with that is uh, you're you're going to make mistakes, you know. Whether it's in the QA part, the results part, you, you know, chasing velocity, you're going to make some mistakes, and you're going to lose out on quality quality test ideas. Um, so that's the second one, and the third one would be you, you got to communicate. You, you have to you got to let people know what's going on. So Jim, if Jim comes to me, he's like he's like, hey Jason, I got a great test idea. Um, you know, this is what I'm thinking. He puts a lot of time and thought into it, right? So you got to think from his experience. And then I take the test idea and I, I go away for two weeks and he doesn't hear anything. 
you know, like what kind of experiences does, does Jim have in the organization? And, hey, I'm not going to submit any more tests. So communication goes across, it goes down, it goes up. Um, communication's huge. From, um, from a, an agency perspective, um, if, if, I'm, if I'm getting started with my optimization program, I bought a new optimization tool, and, and I bring in uh, some outside help either directly from the vendor or, or a third party, um, what risks do you see on, and I, and I think this is rare, but as I, I, it's definitely out there that there are agencies that are compensated based on winning tests and, and, mm-hmm. and Lyft. Do you see any risks with that model? And, and it could be internal as well, right? We could be rewarding our internal team based on producing winning test versions. Are are there any risks that I should be aware of if if I'm working inside that model? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, one is you're you're going to lose out on significant learnings with with all the other tests. Like I mentioned before, if if you're if the average you know win rate is twenty five percent, let's say, or twenty percent, or thirty percent. Um, you know, there, there could be that inclination to do what you said earlier, which was change your success metric and be like, oh, this is a winner. Um, and again, that, that could have like really bad impact on, on down, on down funnel, you know, metrics. So, um, yeah, definitely not a good idea. Um, and I think you'll, I think you'll lose, I think you'll lose some support and some advocates from above if, if, if they really understand like what's going on in the program um, and they really understand the process. So. Yeah. And, and one of the things um, that one of our clients, Todd at the monitor did is he was establishing his optimization very early on. And I think he even mentioned it on one of our podcasts um, that we had him on Jim is he said that I wanted to establish our optimization program as a learning program. Yeah. And I thought yeah. that was such an awesome way to think about it. Yeah, first of all, Todd is amazing to work with. So, you know, have the pleasure to work with Todd on a daily and weekly basis. But that's huge. Like test and learn. I mean, test and learn is a is a term out there that that you hear a lot. Um, you gotta learn. You have to learn. You gotta make the site better. And, and those learnings are 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 driven from a lot of times they're driven from the tests that don't win. And and that goes back to like integrating with your analytics platform. So yeah, I, I love what Todd said there, and and he you know and they stay true to their word. Like you know they they, they love the learning. So if I'm helping them with some analysis, um, the key is like what can they what what can Todd tell his board? Right? Um, hey, this test you know we had we had this test and it went, but here's what we learned, and here's what we're doing about it. You know, hey, maybe we run another test, or maybe we change something on the site. So yeah, very important. Yeah, Jim, as we're as we're wrapping up here, do you have any questions that you've been wanting to to ask? Yeah, I, I have one, and and it's it's a bit broader, and I I see this many times, and it's regardless of tool, um, this idea that a you know this next tool that we bring in is going to solve all of our problems. Um, and I, I've seen it with, with optimization uh, tools as well is, is 
we bring this in. This is going to help us learn so much about our customers and it's going to solve all of our problems. We're going to be able to test our checkout and see where there's issues there or, you know, why people aren't submitting this lead form and whatnot. Um, so with this topic of what not to do with an optimization program or, you know, in this space, in this case, like context of getting started, how do you temper optimism? where it's the, yes, let's be optimistic. This is going to help us a lot, but just adding this tool and just spinning up this program is not automatically going to solve all of our problems. Yeah, that, that's, that's a really good question, Jim. And, you know, as I was, as, as you were going through that, I was thinking about just working in a silo and not working in a silo. So um, I think, I think it's, obviously important to have a lot of um, energy behind the program. I also think it's important to leverage and use other tools within the organization. And so, for example, a lot of AP tests that, I, that I've seen sometimes come from usability studies. So, you know, it's not just a testing tool, right? It's a testing tool in line with what else you have in place. It could be a uh, a, a customer data platform, right? How do we integrate with that? So as you get into your tech stack, how, how do these things integrate? Um, because you're right, Jim, it's not, you know, the testing tool is not going to do it all. It'll do a lot, but it's not going to do it all. So if, I think I think keeping an eye on what other tools are, is the company using and how do we integrate those together? I think that's how you're going to get the, the biggest impact and, um, you know, and keep, keep the optimism up. Because you do... You know, to run a successful optimization program, you do need you do need optimism, and you do need a lot of persistence, and you need to persevere. It's not easy. Yeah, it's it's not easy to do. Yeah, and and I could see it where, um, and I, I do like how you brought up the idea of you know how does this integrate with other tools, and you know sneak peek next week we're going to be talking about integrating specifically optimization and analytics programs. Uh, so the, you you bringing up the idea of like this is one piece to a bigger puzzle. This doesn't solve things on its own because to that point, you're saying needing optimism, the minute this doesn't do everything or this single tool doesn't solve all of these problems in isolation, you know, then it's the, well, everything about this tool is a failure. Yeah. You, you have like, you the, waffle between these extremes, right? Yeah. Yep. And, and no matter what the vendor tells you, the tool cannot do everything, right? There's, you know, there's, there's some really good tools out there, but you need, you need some of that integration to really get the most out of the program, you know, make it robust, make it scalable. Um, yeah. So. Great. Great. So yeah, this one's been a great conversation. It's been really fun to, to hear, hear yeah. your thoughts on this, Jason. And yeah, we have a few more episodes with you planned over the next couple of weeks, but Sweet. Um, Sweet. yeah, th this one, this one flew by this week. So Jason, anything else before we wrap up? No, I think, I think that's a, a good spot there. I think this episode has been packed with a lot of really valuable content, uh, not only for those getting started, like those just, just running programs. I know that was kind of the focal point of today's episode, but a lot of what we talked about really can apply to any level of maturity of, of optimization programs. So really enjoyed the conversation. Great, yep, great. Same. Thanks for thanks for having me again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's go ahead and wrap it up there, and we'll talk to everyone later. See you. All right. See ya. Sounds good. Bye.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of 33 Tangents. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast aggregator so others can find us. If you would like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at 33tangents.33sticks.com. 33 Tangents is a production of 33 Sticks, an analytics boutique.